in the book of Revelation. I'll be looking with us at Revelation 4 this morning, and then next Sunday I'll be on vacation, and the following week after that, and um, Steve Morrow will be looking at Revelation 7, the second half of it with us, and then I'll be back the following two weeks to look at Revelation 21 and 22. As we breeze quickly through the book of Revelation with our seatbelts fashioned, and so this morning... I invite you to open your Bibles to Revelation 4. If you don't have a Bible, there's one in the seat back in front of you. You can find Revelation 4 on page 869 there. Revelation's easy to find. It's the last book of the Bible. So Revelation 4. In the famous children's story, Wizard of Oz, when Dorothy and her friends finally get to the Emerald City, they are made to put on pairs of green spectacles which lock in the back and can't be removed. And um, as it turns out, the only reason the Emerald City looks so beautifully, dazzlingly emerald is because of those spectacles. The great Oz has decreed that everyone wear them so as to keep up the appearance that his rule and his city is in fact a glorious one. You've probably had the experience of putting on a pair of sunglasses and those glasses made the grass and the trees look even more green or more blue or more brown or whatever. <laughs> or you may have had, maybe you need a different pair in, in that case. You bought a cheap pair probably. Maybe you've had the experience of putting on a regular pair of glasses and having the world which was all soft and fuzzy certain, suddenly become clear and in focus. Well, life is like that too. We all view the world through one or more sets of lenses. And, and great leaders and influencers have always known this, and so they have employed image makers and opinion shapers and public relations experts and propaganda artists to craft for people the sets of lenses that they would like them to view their leadership and rule through much like Oz did, literally. And this was very true of the Roman world in the first century AD, which is the world to which and for which the book of Revelation was originally written. We read in Revelation 1, verses 1 to 2, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must take place soon, he made it known to him by sending an angel to his servant John, who testified to everything he saw. And then in verses 9 to 11, we read that John was on the island of Patmos, and he received visions. He formed them into a letter, and he sent them at Jesus' request to 12 churches in the province of Asia, the churches in the cities of Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. And there's some debate about what year all this happened, but the probable date seems to be about 95 AD during the reign of the Roman Emperor Domitian. And the likely reason for this letter of Revelation is that the Roman Empire and the Church of Jesus were on a collision course. Rome was growing both in its economic injustice and its oppression and in its political power and in its hubris. And it was therefore becoming harder and harder to follow Jesus faithfully and to still participate as a good citizen in the Roman Empire. 
Very likely the flashpoint for this conflict of interests was the growing practice of emperor worship. Because Christians couldn't participate in this practice, and I'll say a little bit more about the practice later, Jesus knew that, that persecution against his people was about to ramp up. And Jesus also knew that these churches were not ready. They weren't ready to faithfully endure this kind of testing and pressure. And so in the book of Revelation, Jesus gives his people a set of glasses through which to view their circumstances. And so the book of Revelation is first and foremost a battle for our imaginations. You see, the Roman emperors were masters at this matter of propaganda and opinion shaping. Back at that time, they had very successfully created an image of themselves as the exalted saviors and benefactors of the ancient world. They had captured the imaginations of, of the people of their empire using military marches and political songs and pageantry and great statues and monuments and grand building projects. Some of them are still there around the Mediterranean today. Uh, amphitheaters and baths and roads and bridges and aqueducts and arenas and palaces and temples. And of course, the ever presence of Roman legions, just to make sure. And, and all of these and other strategies regularly reminded people of the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome, through which Rome had unified the ancient world, bringing peace and prosperity and culture and civilization. Thus, as exalted head of this empire, the Caesar came to be trumpeted and even worshipped as savior of the world and as Lord and God. In fact, here's a list of titles and phrases which are known to have been shouted to the emperor when he appeared in public. Holy one, glory, salvation belongs to you, authority, worthy to receive power, righteous are your judgments, our Lord and God, Lord of heaven, I'm sorry, our Lord and God, Lord of earth, Lord of the world. Now, if you know anything about the book of Revelation, these words should be ringing all kinds of bells. Well, to up the ante even further, by the time the book of Revelation was written, emperors were beginning to be worshipped as gods. And, and this was becoming especially prominent in the province of Asia. So it wouldn't be long before everyone in the Roman Empire would be required to periodically kneel before an altar dedicated to Caesar to offer a pinch of incense on the altar and to utter the words, Kaiser Corios, Caesar is Lord. Now, Christians who insisted that Christos Corios, Christ is Lord, couldn't do this. And thus, they would be marked as traitors and rebels. Now, now to feel the press of this, you, you have to realize how evident to everyone else it was that Caesar was great, that Caesar was powerful, that Caesar was Lord, and how puny it must have felt for Christians to say, no, the truly great one is, is this little-known Jewish carpenter from one of Rome's small, insignificant, outlying provinces who, who got crucified by Rome for defying Caesar's power. That takes some imagination. And that is what the book of Revelation is about. It's about recapturing the imagination of Jesus' followers. It's about 
giving us a new set of glasses through which to see the way reality really is and what is really going on in the world. Now, of course, we today don't live in ancient Rome. We don't have to worry, at least at the moment, that we'll be asked by our political leaders to worship them. Yet, nevertheless, we, like the original recipients of John's letter, live in the midst of a great world empire. An empire puffed up with, with its self-importance. An empire which employs image makers and opinion shapers to capture our imaginations, to offer us a set of glasses to wear. For us, like those uh, living under the Roman Empire, this empire today has both political and economic characteristics. It offers both safety and security and freedom and also economic prosperity. So I'm not just talking here about the American government. I'm talking also about the whole global economy of which the United States is a key player and beneficiary. This empire, perhaps empire is too strong a word if we're thinking of empire in the Roman sense, so feel free to think of empire in the sense that we talk about Rupert Murdoch's media empire or Monsanto's corporate empire. This empire, these empires, like the Roman empire before them, are also masters at shaping public opinion using advertising and media and political rhetoric and pomp and ceremony to justify their actions in the world and to give us a certain set of glasses to wear. But in the book of Revelation, Jesus Christ offers us, like he offered the book's original readers, a profoundly different set of glasses to wear. And if we're going to be faithful to Jesus in our time, we're going to have to regularly and consciously take off the other sets of glasses that we've been given to wear and to put on the set of glasses that Jesus Christ gives us to wear in the Bible and especially in the Bible's last book, the book of Revelation. Today we look at Revelation 4 where, where Jesus' battle for our perception of reality, for our imagination begins in earnest. In the vision that Jesus Christ gave John to relay to the seven churches, John says, After this I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. And the voice I had heard first speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. Here John is taken up into heaven and, and the first thing he sees as he puts on this new set of glasses is a throne with someone sitting on it. If we're going to see the world the way Jesus wants us to see it, we're going to have to see a throne at this world's very center. And someone is sitting on that throne of the universe. Far above Caesar and his control of the Roman world. Far above the White House and Capitol Hill. Far above the latest G8 summit. There is another throne. And there is someone sitting on that throne. This is good news. I don't know if you're like me, but, but I 
have been feeling the uneasiness, the stress, the concern of everything that's been going on lately in the world. As Newsweek magazine put it on their March 28th cover, tsunamis, earthquakes, nuclear meltdowns, revolutions, economies on the brink, what the bleep is next? What a relief it is to be reminded, given all that, that there is someone on the throne. Someone whose hand is steering history. Someone who's present in the control room of the universe. Now, how someone can be on that throne and still all of these things can happen around us is a mystery which we have to read the whole book of Revelation to begin to understand. But for this morning, let's focus on the throne. That's what John wants us to do. Literally, John says in verse 2, I was in the Spirit, and look, a throne! Look, a throne! John wants us to focus on what he sees, and he sees a throne with somebody sitting on it. And then John describes what else he sees, and he uses six prepositions to describe what he sees on and coming from and encircling and surrounding and in front of and around this throne. So let's take in what John sees this morning as Jesus seeks to reshape our imaginations. First, on the throne, verses 2 and 3. And there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and ruby. It's striking that this whole chapter, in this whole chapter, John never actually describes the one on the throne, other than to say that his appearance was like jasper and ruby or carnelian, some of your translations have. And these two gems are, are the first and the last of the, the 12 gems which adorned the breastplate of the Israelite high priest which he would wear into the presence of God. These uh, same 12 gems later reappear in John's vision of the New Jerusalem at the very end of the letter of Revelation when God comes to dwell among his people. And, and each time those 12 gems are listed, Jasper is at the head of that list. So John may be using these two stones here as, as shorthand to represent all the precious stones which reflect all the facets of the one who sits on the throne. In other words, the one on the throne is, is beautiful and, and precious and luxurious and radiant in glory like, like jasper and like ruby and like every other precious stone too. And that's as far as John will go to describe the one on the throne. Why? Well, well, perhaps because we dare not make an image of God. Whatever we were to picture God like, it would fall utterly short. We would replace the, the awesome mystery of who God is with, with an insufficient image, an idol which would sell God short. But perhaps there's another reason too. And that is because in the very next chapter, chapter 5, John describes another being who's at the right hand of the one on the throne. And that being is the one to whom John would have us direct our attention. For if we want to know what the one on the throne is like, we do best to look at the one on the right side 
on the right hand of the throne. The lion of the tribe of Judah, who looks like a lamb who has been slain. It's that slain lamb who, it turns out, holds the key to all that follows in history. It's on that one that John would have us gaze. As for the one on the throne, it's enough to know that that one is there. And that everything else that happens around that throne centers in and on that one. Look, the Lord God Almighty is on the throne. Now that is a very different set of glasses than the ones other empires give us to put on. In his book on Revelation, Pastor Daryl Johnson writes, I stand in awe of what has come and gone in my 56 years. Names I once feared are no longer spoken. Nikita Khrushchev, Mao Zedong, Pol Pot, Idi Amin. Powerful leaders have risen and fallen. Ideologies have come and gone. Apartheid, Marxism, transactional analysis. The balance of political power has shifted. The center of economic power has moved. Issues that used to seem like matters of life and death are no longer discussed. Yet one thing has not changed. Look, a throne with someone sitting on it. Second, let's consider what is coming from that throne. Verse 5. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings, and peals of thunder. This is reminiscent of what happened in the book of Exodus when God came down on Mount Sinai. It speaks of, of God's awesomeness, of God's power, of, of God's untouchable holiness. The book of Hebrews chapter 12 describes the events of Mount Sinai this way. It describes Mount Sinai as burning with fire, with darkness, gloom, and storm, with a trumpet blast and, and such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further word be spoken to them because they could not bear what was commanded. If even an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned to death. The sight was so terrifying that Moses said, I am trembling with fear. The lightning and the thunder also point towards God's judgments as, as righteous judge of the earth. As the visions of Revelation unfold, this lightning and thunder will accompany God's greatest and climactic judgments on the world. The, the seventh seal, the seventh trumpet, the seventh bowl. God's powerful, almighty, irresistible judgment comes from the throne. But third, look what encircles the throne. Verse 3, a rainbow that shone like an emerald encircled the throne. This is very good news. All around the throne there's a rainbow. This rainbow harkens back to, to the sign and promise that God gave to Noah after God had destroyed the world with a flood. God gave them a rainbow as a promise that, that He would never again destroy the earth that way. And this reminder encircles the throne so that God always sees it. In other words, though the time for God to judge the earth grows close, God's promise to be merciful is never out of His sight. 
Even in the judgments which will unfold in the book of Revelation, God will always temper them with His mercy. And just as in the days of Noah, the the rainbow heralded not just the destruction of the old world, but but the beginning of a new creation, a, a new beginning for humanity and for the world, so too this rainbow points us toward the new Jerusalem and the new creation, which is the ultimate grace of God to all who are willing to repent of their rebellion against God and to give their allegiance to the one on the throne. A rainbow encircles the throne. Fourth, John describes what surrounds the throne. Verse 4. Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones, and seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. Who are these elders? Well, there are 24 of them. That's 12 plus 12. And given that in the last chapter of Revelation, the 12 tribes of the Old Testament and the the 12 apostles of the New Testament are present in the New Jerusalem, I think that these 24 elders in some way represent the whole people of God. They sit on 24 thrones, presumably reigning with Christ. They wear golden crowns. These crowns can signify rule and authority, as do the thrones. But the Greek word indicates that they're they're, um, wreathed or, or leaflet crowns. The, the kind given as a reward for a victory won or for a job well done. The 24 also wear white robes, which throughout Revelation represent the, the purity obtained by, by faithfully persevering in the face of tribulation. I think the point is that these 24 elders represent the kind of people God delights to have around him. Those who've persevered, those who have have been faithful and have therefore received their reward. These kind of people are the ones that the one on the throne rewards with a place in his presence to live and reign with him forever. Those who seek other rewards that other empires can offer have already received their rewards. But those who've persevered in faithfulness, who serve the true king, await the reward that only that king can give. Throughout the book of Revelation, these 24 elders fall down and worship the one on the throne. Remember, we saw uh, three weeks ago on Palm Sunday that worship is a political act. It isn't so much that these 24 love to sing or, or love worship music, although that may be true, but, but the point is that these 24 give their grateful and delightful Allegiance fully to the one on the throne and not to anyone else. That's worship. Fifth, we see what is in front of the throne. Verse 5, in front of the throne, seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. Seven is the number of completeness in the Bible and lamps symbolize light which chases away the darkness, which illuminates and reveals so that nothing is hidden. Daryl Johnson explains the imagery here well. He says, when we approach the control center of the universe, everything is open, above board, clear and clean, no deceit, no games, no duplicity, no double messages, no manipulation." It makes me think that many of our halls of power today could use some lamps like this. 
Or to go back to the lenses analogy, every other pair of glasses that someone will hand you to wear are like, some, are like sunglasses which will in some way color and distort reality to the way that they want you to see them. But the glasses that God gives us to wear are, are like corrective lenses which finally allow us to see the world clearly as it really is, as those lamps give light. These lamps also remind us that before God, all is light. And in that light, we can't help but be exposed and revealed and transformed and healed. John goes on to identify these lamps as the seven spirits of God. And, and the reference here is to the Holy Spirit. But why seven? Well, seven again is the number of completeness. Also, Revelation is addressed to seven churches, and, and the Spirit of God is fully available to each one of the seven. The Spirit is in each one of the seven. In other words, these lamps burn among us, bringing the light of God to us, God's people. Well, in addition to the lamps, there's something else that John sees in front of the throne. Verse 6. He sees what looks like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. This sea is likely the bringing together of several images. Solomon's temple had a huge bronze sea, which uh, many take to represent God's dominion over the chaotic and evil forces of the world. You may uh, remember that whenever we find a sea in the Bible, we should immediately think of darkness and foreboding and chaos. That's the way ancient peoples saw the sea. In Genesis 1, God brings creation out of the brooding sea and, and marks off boundaries that the sea is not to cross. In Genesis 6 and following, God allows the sea to overrun those boundaries and to destroy the earth. And God brings Noah and his ark through the sea and back to dry land, a new creation. Then in Exodus, God leads his people through the sea, but allows the Egyptians, the enemies, to perish there. A great act of salvation and another new act of creation. In the visions of Daniel, four great and, and terrible beasts come out of the sea. A beast later comes out of the sea again in Revelation 13. And in the New Testament, Jesus finally stills the stormy sea. And here in Revelation, the sea is in front of God's throne, calm and clear as glass. This is the heavenly perspective. On earth, the chaos continues. <laughs> but it will not continue forever because in heaven, it has been brought under God's dominion, still and clear as glass. That's why we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The good news is that the chaos cannot ultimately win because in heaven it has already been tamed by the one who stills the storm. Finally, sixth, Let's turn to what John sees around the throne, verses 6 to 8. In the center around the throne, there were four living creatures, and they were covered with eyes in front and in back. 
The first living creature was like a lion. The second was like an ox. The third had the face of a man. And the fourth was like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under its wings. Now, who or what are these strange-looking creatures? Well, the fact that there are four suggests that they represent the totality of God's creation. Four is the number of creation. In, in the Bible, the earth is spoken of as having four winds and four corners. And the fact that these creatures resemble a lion, an ox, an eagle, and a man suggests that they represent uh, the greatness of what God has created or that they're the greatest representatives of um, what God has created. The lion is the greatest of the beasts, the ox, the greatest of the livestock, the eagle, the greatest of those who fly, and man, the king of them all. And each of these creatures has six wings and they're covered with eyes all over. Now, this is kind of grotesque, but work with the imagery here. The, the, the six wings, first of all, uh, connect these creatures with the, the awesome angelic seraphim of, of Isaiah's great vision of, of Isaiah 6. We were singing holy, holy, holy about that vision this morning. Perhaps also it, it connects these creatures with the winged cherubim found on the, the cover of the ark of the Lord, the Old Testament symbol of God's presence in God's throne. And in biblical imagery, these seraphim are like God's bodyguards or like his closest attendants. They're, they're continually ministering in his presence. That they're covered with eyes suggests that like the one on the throne, they see all. They see all. Nothing is hidden from the view of the, from the throne room. Nothing is hidden. Nothing escapes notice or attention. And what are these creatures doing around the throne, along with the 24 elders? Day and night, they never stop saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever. The 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and, and worship him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne and they say, you are worthy, our Lord and God, not the Caesar. You are worthy to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they were created. And have their being. That is how we're to respond to this vision. We're to worship. Not just with our words. But with our lives. We live in a world where our, our view of reality. The sets of glasses that we wear. Are constantly being reshaped by, by image makers. By, by spin doctors by marketing firms trying to, to get us to see the world a certain way, which is in their best interest. Trying to, to pull our allegiance in a certain direction. But Jesus, through John, offers us another set of glasses. A set of glasses which brings how things really are into sharp focus. In heaven, there is a throne and someone is sitting on that throne. 
that one alone deserves our allegiance and our worship. Let's pray. God, almighty and awesome one, I pray as we work through the book of Revelation this month that you would reshape and purify our imaginations and our view of reality so that we, like John, who, to whom you gave these visions, could see clearly, could see reality for what it really is. And that as a result, we would be pulled free of our constant temptation and tendency to give our allegiance to other empires and that we would give our allegiance wholeheartedly and fully and with great joy to you, the one who sits on the throne forever and ever. Amen.